0: Welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craft for life. Welcome to all returning listeners and everybody who is checking out my podcast for the first time. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. I hope you have a drink on hand and are enjoying some making while listening to this podcast. First of all, I would like to say a very big thank you to everybody who contacted me after my first episode to provide feedback, whether on content or the technical side. It can always feel a bit vulnerable to put ourselves out there creatively. And I was very aware that I was also sharing some of my values. So I felt doubly exposed. So thank you for your kind, supportive and encouraging words. On the technical side, I'm glad to hear there were no horrors. Thank you for all the suggestions of making the podcast available through more platforms. I'm working on this steadily, but I'm having to work out what the platforms are and how they work to upload them. The podcast is currently available on my blog, on Podbean and iTunes, and also on Player FM. If you can't find the podcast on your preferred app, please do contact me and I'll try and send you an RSS feed so you can access it while I try to find a more systematic way to get it on the platform. I would also like to thank everybody who recommended the podcast to their friends. I know it's hard to assess a podcast on one episode, so I am very touched that many of you were willing to recommend it to your friends, even at this early stage. Finally, I'd like to thank everybody who shared their experience of the tension between our love of materials and making and a desire to use resources responsibly. One listener, and I apologise, I've forgotten your name, shared that she often feels that she falls short when trying to live a more sustainable life. Boy, do I know what she means. I very much hope that this podcast and the conversations that it prompts does not become some kind of competition. I'd like it to be a space where we can acknowledge that, quite frankly, a lot of the time we're just muddling through. We are making the best decisions we can in the circumstances with the resources, uh, information and energy we have available to us. I also think it's quite important that we have a safe space where we can say, actually, always trying to make a responsible decision or something we think is a responsible decision can come a bit of a bore. Sometimes you want nothing more than a bit of frivolity, and there really is no harm in that. If you want to contact me, you can do so via my blog at www.mrsmcuriositycabinet.com or on Instagram where I am Mrs. M. Curiosity Cabinet with underscore between each word or on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs. M, with a hyphen between each word. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. So, what's in store in today's podcast? I'll be introducing a knitting experiment I've just started and there will be a spot of sewing and a little kitchen alchemy. So last month I started what will probably be a long-term sock experiment. What was the impetus? Well, I often hear knitters say, it's not sock yarn, it doesn't contain nylon. This statement is trotted out in a very matter-of-fact way, it's almost a perceived wisdom, and I know it's not intended to annoy or provoke, but I just can't help it. My knee-jerk response is, so did people not wear socks before the 1940s? For that is how recent nylon is. This synthetic substance was developed in 1935 and it was not turned into fabric until about 1939. Yet in barely 80 years, it has become so ubiquitous that we can't imagine life without it. In my general attempts to reduce the amount of plastic products in my life, I want to get a feel for how necessary nylon really is in a sock yarn. Now, I'm not purist about banishing plastic products from my life. For example, I experience very real benefits from bra elastic, like many women, I presume. And I'm not about to swap my bra for a corset. Although, you know, never say never. But what benefit do I actually gain from nylon in socks? The honest answer is I don't know. The only people who may be able to answer that question are people who are old enough to remember the transition from 100% natural socks to a nylon wool sock blend and I imagine if we asked them at best we would get an anecdotal response but to be honest they probably didn't pay an awful lot of attention to the issue. So the researcher and me decided to devise a little experiment. It's not a scientific experiment. After all, I'm only a sample of one. But it is an experiment that should give me some objective insight into whether nylon is essential in socks for me or not. So how will this experiment work? Well, like all good experiments, I need to compare the fibres I'm testing against a more or less consistent group of fibres. That means I'll need a control sample. For my control samples, I will be using the wool nylon blend that I've still got in my stash. This is commercial sock yarn from companies like West Yorkshire Spinners, Bergère de France and Opal, rather than hand-dyed yarn. My socks undergo a lot of wear and tear as I walk everywhere, so I prefer to keep the hand-dyed yarn for shawls rather than pound the streets of London in them. For my experiment, I'm going to knit a number of sets of socks. I don't know as yet how many sets of socks I'm going to make. It depends on how many wools and blends I find that have properties that might lend themselves to making socks. Each set will involve two pairs of socks that I knit with the same pattern. The control pair will be made from commercial sock yarn with up to 25% nylon in it and the test pair will be made with a wool or a wool blend that consists of 100% natural fibers. For each pair of socks that I make, I will log how often I wear them, both with shoes and without shoes, and how often I wash them. Now I'm not planning to use any sexy tools for logging this information, it will probably just be a sheet that I hang up in my laundry cupboard. Obviously this is going to be a bit of an ongoing experiment, because on the one hand it will take me some time to knit enough pair of socks, and on the other, the intensity with which I wear socks depends a bit on the seasons. So you can expect regular updates about this experiment. For the first set of socks, I am knitting two pairs of the planum sock, that's P-L-A-N-U-M by Claire Devine. This is one of my go-to patterns for everyday socks because I always get a comfortable fit with this design. It's knit toe up, which I probably marginally prefer as I tend to get a much snugger fit over the instep. And the leg involves two sections of rib, one of which turns down. This means lots of negative ease, so the sock doesn't slip down. What wools am I using for my first set? Well, for the control pair, I'm using Bergère de France Gumi yarn in the beige color. This sounds quite dull, but it's actually a subtle self-striping yarn that is a mix of oatmeal, pink, peach, and brown. It contains 75% superwash wool and 25% nylon, and each 50 gram ball is 215 meters or about 275 yards. For my first pair of 100% natural socks, I'm using Blacker Yarns Mohair Blend, in particular a 50-50 mohair manx blend in a warm rose colour called Blissland. Blacker's Mohair Blend is a yarn I've wanted to try for a long time, so I picked a couple of balls up when I was up at the Edinburgh Yarn Festival. As I hadn't seen this particular colour on the website previously, I mentioned to Sonia of Blacker Yarns that I thought it was absolutely gorgeous. And she told me that they're about to relaunch the range. The range consists of two blends. There is the 50-50 Hebridean mohair blend and the 50-50 Manx mohair blend. Now in many ways it made sense starting my no-nylon sock experiment with a mohair blend as mohair is known as Nature's Nylon. It has a relatively long staple but is more importantly a very strong fibre. So just the kind of thing you'd look for for something durable like a sock. Mohair also has a lovely luster and takes dye very well which is quite important when you think which wools Blacker has decided to pair it with. Both Hebridean and Manx are dark coloured wools. The Hebridean sheep is a conservation breed from the Hebridean islands off the northwest of Scotland. They have generally been overlooked by commercial wool companies and dyers for a couple of reasons. I will quite happily wear a Hebridean shawl around my neck, but it's not what you would call a soft wool. I find it a very comfortable wool, but it's certainly no BFL or merino. It is also a very dark wool. Its colour ranges from a deep bitter chocolate to a black and for this reason it's not particularly popular with commercial wool companies and even many diets. The Manx Lochten is another conservation breed. It is a native sheep of the Isle of Man which is an island that sits about equidistant between North England and Northern Ireland. The Manx Lochten is a fabulous looking sheep. You really should look it up. It looks to me a bit like the elder statesman of sheep. It has this thick pale brown fleece and the most spectacular horns. Typically there'll be a large pair of horns coming out of the top of its head but also another pair of horns that comes out of the sides and wraps down a bit like the whiskers of an Edwardian gentleman. This yarn is woolen spun rather than the worsted spun technique often used for sock yarns. A worsted spun wool is typically stronger than a woolen one, but there is some merit in having a yarn that can full a little. Fulling is not as extreme as felting, but as with felting, there'll be a certain amount of bonding of the tiny fibres within the wool to make a stronger fabric, but without the shrinkage that you would get with felting. The mohair blend comes in 50 gram balls and for that you get 175 meters or about 190 yards so it is quite a bit heavier than the Bergère de France yarn. It costs around 550 to 6 pounds per, per ball so you're looking at probably about 11-12 pounds for a pair of socks. I knit the control pair on my standard 2.25 millimetres in the foot and the heel and 2.5 millimetres in the leg. I think that equates to about a one and a one and a half US needle. I typically knit my socks with a smaller needle in the foot and the heel and then go up a size for the leg as I hate it when socks are wrinkly around the foot and I do also need a little bit more. Leeway in the actual leg as my ankles are a little larger. I'm halfway through this second pair of my mohair blend socks and I really can't wait to finish these and try them on. The knitted fabric feels very cosy but also wonderfully robust and it reminds me very much of the socks Mum bought when I started secondary school. They were commercial socks but they were quite densely knitted. Even as a preteen girl, I realised that these were quality socks with body that would last. And boy, did they last. I think I was probably in the fourth form when the first pair started to wear out. So, if I get anything like that amount of wear out of these mohair blend socks, I will be absolutely delighted. There's another reason why I'm eager to get these socks off the needles and onto my feet. I read a fabulous review about socks knit with Blacker Yarns Mohair Blend a couple of weeks ago. It was a review by Christine Perry, also known as Winnick Mum on Ravelry, and Winnick is spelt W-I-N-W-I-C-K. Christine hiked around Peru in socks knitted in Blacayans Mohair Blend, and apparently the socks stood up really well to that test. I've loved working with the Maxim Mohair Blend so far, and I would also love to use the Hebridean Mohair Blend too, and just see how the two compare. I can definitely see myself using this blend for garments, so much so that I've already made a swatch with the leftovers from the first ball of wool. If you want to try the new range of Blacker's mohair blend, you won't have long to wait. I believe it launches in late April and there will be about 10 colours in all. Blacker Yarns very kindly sent me a shade card and all I can say is they are gorgeous. They are absolutely up my street. Some of the colours are reminiscent of the jeweled colours that we saw in the Cornish Tin range, those emeralds and sapphire blues and gorgeous raspberry reds, but there are also colours that are slightly earthier and slightly warmer. I think the brown Hebridean Manx fleece has given a real warmth and depth to many of the colours. I particularly like the almost spicy wine red shade and the undyed rose brown and as for the greens those are spectacular and I'm somebody who does not wear a lot of green these days but will definitely make an exception for these greens As my first set of socks is almost finished I'm turning my mind to the second pair I plan to knit a sock pattern that has some lace in. I'm thinking something that will work for the spring and autumn seasons. For my control pair I will be using some West Yorkshire spinners that I have in stash in an off-white colour and for the 100% natural pair I will be using some Pole Dorset yarn from Northern Yarn. This wool was recommended by Christine Perry as her legacy wool on episode 80 of the Knit British podcast. So do check out that episode and see what she has to say about the qualities of this wool. I was delighted to hear that she is also making socks out of 100% natural fibres. Apart from being able to pick somebody's brains and swap tips, it's quite nice to know that there are other people out there asking the same question. Do we really need nylon in our socks or can we rely on the materials that have been used in previous generations? If anybody wants to join in with this type of experiment, please do feel free to take this idea and modify it to suit you. I would love to hear what you discover along the way. And just to be clear, I'm not encouraging anybody to stop using a particular sock blend or sock brand, and I'm certainly not suggesting you stop supporting your favourite yarn dyer. I'm simply interested in working out in a way that is somewhat objective what benefit if any I derive from nylon in my sock yarn and whether I can achieve the same benefits by using materials with similar properties. The reason I'm doing this is because I want to make an informed decision going forward and as this is an experiment I am completely open-minded about what the outcome might be. Next up is a section I'm calling the craft of use. I've been doing quite a bit of sewing of late including making a disastrous wearable twirl of the factory dress. I'm still smarting a bit about that experience so I'll save that for next time. Instead today I would like to focus on a really useful but seldom discussed aspect of sewing, adjustments. Post-completion modifications are hardly sexy, but please do bear with me as they are actually quite an important part of the dressmaker's learning curve, well, they certainly are for me. In the past week I've had to take in a couple of skirts. In the past months I've shed a few pounds, which is obviously lovely, but it has left some of my skirts feeling rather baggy. As I only made them last year, I definitely want to get more wear out of them, and I'm particularly eager to prolong the life of my linen skirt, as the linen material frayed dreadfully, I ended up bias binding all of the seams. It took me hours, so I'm certainly not going to give up on that amount of work. Unfortunately, not all of the bagginess can be attributed to weight loss. How do I know this? Well, I made both skirts that I modified using the same pattern, in the same size, with the same seam allowance. The only difference was I was using different materials. I made one skirt out of linen and the other out of corduroy, and there's probably about an extra half an inch space in the linen skirt. I think the reason for this is that when I fitted the skirts originally, I fitted them for what the fabric felt like unworn. But most fabrics relax a little after wearing. Sometimes it might take a few hours or even days, but they create more ease. Now to the knitter in me, that made perfect sense. One of the reasons we knit swatches after all is to see how the fabric relaxes once washed or exposed to heat. In sewing by contrast, we might make a twirl to check the fit of a particular pattern, but we don't really test how the fabric will perform upon wearing, even if we use a fabric of similar weight for our twirl. I suspect it's only through experience and actively noticing how fabrics wear that I will build up the know-how I need to be able to fit garments properly. If there are any experienced dressmakers or seamstresses out there who know of any shortcuts, please do share them with me. The only way I can think of is to make a handmade wardrobe that is based on a limited number of patterns that I then make up in different fabrics, like wools and corduroy for the winter, linen for the summer, or cotton poplin or cotton chambray for the in-between seasons. Fortunately a limited repertoire of patterns works perfectly with how I see my modest handmade wardrobe progressing. That said there's a fair chance that my body will fluctuate so learning some decent adjustment skills will not be lost. There is also an upside to revisiting clothes we've already made particularly as a new sewist. By unpicking certain sections of a garment we are reminded why they are constructed the way they are. Unpicking and remaking has also taught me where I can deviate from the pattern instructions to make it easier going forward to make modifications. Revisiting clothes that I made maybe 6 or 12 months ago has involved a certain amount of cringing at my mistakes and imperfections, but I have also realised how far my skills have come in that time. I thought I would share some of the practical details on how I took in the skirts, as they may be useful to others facing modifications. Both the skirts were simple A-line ones, and they had a waistband that was cut on the curve rather than being constructed as a strip. As with most waistbands, it involved two sections, an outer waistband, which was reinforced with interfacing, and an inner waistband. When I originally put the skirt together, I attached the skirt panels to the outer waistband. Then I seamed the inner waistband to the top of the outer one. I folded down the inner waistband at the top of the waistbands I top stitched the, t- the inner and outer waistbands together for a neat edge and then I stitched the lower section of the inner waistband with a blind stitch to the bottom of the outer one. On the linen skirt I also bias bound the bottom seam of the inner waistband to create a clean hem rather than simply folding it under. I'll include a graph in the show notes to make this section clearer. Before I could increase the side seam allowances, the vertical seams if you like, to take in the skirt, I had to unpick some of all of the above horizontal seams as well as some of the hem. I have to admit, unpicking seams is a tedious job and I certainly didn't want to unpick more than was necessary, but I also learned if you don't unpick enough, it becomes very hard to restitch. In practice, this meant I unpicked about a total of six to seven inches at the seam that connects the skirt panels to the outer waistband, as well as the blind stitching that secures the inner waistband to the outer one. Then about four to five inches of the top stitching and two to three inches of the seam that connects the inner and outer waistband at the top. At the hem, I only unpicked about two to three inches. Taking the skirt in was actually quite simple. I just ran the sewing machine down the side seams of the skirt panels and then down the side seams of each of the inner and outer waistband. Then I reattached the outer waistband to the skirt then, as with the original sewing pattern, I attached the inner waistband to the outer waistband. So that was a case of stitching the two to three inches. Then I redid the top stitching. On the linen skirt, I then had to tackle the bias binding, which was quite frankly a real pig. It was one of those scenarios where there was too much excess to ignore, but not really enough to do anything useful with. Finally, I blind stitched the inner waistband to the outer waistband and redid the sections on the hem. Having made the same adjustments a couple of times in succession, I've realised several things. First of all, avoid bias binding the inner waistband if at all possible. It may look neat, but it is an absolute nightmare to unpick and re-stitch, so instead just make a neat hem by turning under the fabric. Secondly, I'm very glad that very early on in my sewing I decided to switch to blind stitching my inner waistbands by hand. I know a lot of sewing patterns recommend using a stitch in the ditch method whereby you're actually stitching the inner and outer waistbands together on the good side of the fabric, so the outward facing side of the skirt. When I first started dressmaking I tried that method but never really got on with it and I quickly switched to using a herringbone stitch to attach the inside of the inner waistband to the seam that you create by stitching the skirt panels to the outer waistband. It definitely takes more time, but it is a lot easier to unpick. Another thing I learnt is use understitching instead of top stitching for finishing the top of the waistband, as there is a fair chance that you'll run out of the original thread, and I for one am certainly not going to go out and buy a whole wheel of thread for repairs, so if you're doing understitching you won't actually see that on the outside of the garment. I've also learned that time, effort and skill, even the occasionally frustrated square, actually do reinforce a bond with a garment. The key lesson I've learned, I suppose, is that adjustments don't need to be perfect. They just need to be serviceable. Mine most definitely weren't perfect, but you would have to inspect skirts really closely to spot the slight misalignments, the two inches of non-matching thread or the less than perfect folds I used to pinch out the excess bias binding. The reality is, nobody will ever know, let alone care. Except me, of course. But actually, even with my perfectionist tendencies, I think there is a certain charm in these minor flaws. They are evidence that I care enough about something I have made to modify it so it will last longer. They are signs of the craft of use. The craft of use is a term I have adopted from Kate Fletcher. Kate is an academic in the UK who focuses on sustainable fashion issues. Her latest book is called Craft of Use, Post-Growth Fashion and was published in 2016 by Routledge. In the past, Kate has focused predominantly on materials and design issues, but in her latest book she looks at the usage phase. As a maker, I really like the idea that our craft does not end when we hem a garment or attach the last button or cast off a shawl. I like the idea that the craft extends into how we wear it, how we maintain it, how we reinvent it, or how we pass it on or share it. If you are interested in issues relating to sustainable clothes, I would certainly recommend reading Kate's book, and this one especially. It's very much a book that's based on academic research, but it is highly accessible and very inspiring. As it contains a lot of cameos from the research interviews, it is a very charming book as well. It provides a lot of food for thought, not just in terms of our personal relationship with garments, but also about the fashion systems and the role of social attitudes and psychology. I will include a link about the book in the show notes for information. I would add it was not a particularly cheap book, so you may want to try and get it through a local library or through an interlibrary loan. Finally, a little bit of kitchen alchemy. My small kitchen is a scene of a lot of making, mostly food-related making, but also other crafts. And the more I use materials and learn how to process them, the more fascinated I also become about the processes that occur within food making. I'm not just talking about the steps I take to combine ingredients, but what processes actually occur when one type of ingredient reacts with another. I don't pretend to understand all the science that occurs when dough is baked into bread or certain ingredients commingle to make a tangy meal or a lasting preserve but I recognise that it's science in action and that it's fascinating. I also love the fact that even if I did fully understand the minutiae of the processes, I would never actually be able to fully control them. Each batch of bread I make is slightly different as the ambient air varies and impacts on how the yeast works. Similarly, jams or pickles vary from year to year as the quality and quantity of sun, soil and water varies each year. And I quite like that. My recent foray into kitchen alchemy has involved the ancient art of fermenting, in particular lacto-fermentation in the form of sauerkraut. I have tried to make sauerkraut in the past, but with only limited success. About a month ago, I had the opportunity to attend a workshop that the environmental charity Hubbub UK organised as part of its activities focused on food waste. The workshop leader was a very no-nonsense Australian chef who boiled fermenting vegetables down to a couple of very simple principles. The key message was to not be a purist about the recipe. Use flavours you like. It doesn't matter if it's not a traditional sauerkraut or a textbook kimchi. Go with what you'll actually eat. The second point was to chop ingredients very finely. Thirdly, pound the vegetables long enough so they start to leach their natural fluid. This pounding starts to break down the fibrous structure. He pointed out that you can use a rolling pin for this step, but the best tool really is your hands. Then, and crucially, add approximately 2% salt and massage it into the pounded vegetables. Finally, keep the vegetables submerged below the brine line to create an airless environment so bacteria can't survive. If necessary, pop a small jar of water on top of the vegetables to weigh them down. And then, taste regularly. We all have different taste buds, so some people prefer things more fermented than others. In many ways, these principles reinforced what I already knew, but the 2% salt guideline was new to me. And it was really useful, as I have always been a bit wary of salt after growing up in a house where salt was kept to a minimum due to my dad's blood pressure. I suspect that this fear of salt was the reason for my past failures with fermenting. Although too much salt can slow down or even stop the fermentation process, you do need enough to stop unwanted bacteria from taking hold and to extract water from the vegetables to make the brine. I left the workshop with a jar of sauerkraut but managed to devour it within weeks. I've therefore been having fun making more. We are now getting to the end of the winter cabbage season, so I have been using my new confidence in fermenting to preserve the last of the winter flavours. I've made a relatively traditional white cabbage sauerkraut, but added caraway seeds for a central European flavour. I'm also currently brewing up some kraut a hybrid between sauerkraut and kimchi. I used hispy cabbage, carrot, garlic, radish and lots of ginger. As Anne-Marie of the Zero Waste Chef blog will confirm, once you've had some success with fermenting, you want to ferment everything. There is certainly an element of truth to that. As we are now into the spring growing season, and beetroots have traditionally done well in my tiny garden, I'm hoping for enough of a glut so that I can try to ferment some. And I can't wait to try my hand at making yoghurt again, and maybe even kefir. When I learnt to throw pots and then later learnt to spin, Mr M asked with a chuckle whether I planned to master all the ancient crafts. Well, in taking up fermenting, one of the oldest forms of preserving food known to man, I was certainly doing nothing to disabuse him of that notion. If you fancy trying your hand at fermenting, I can definitely recommend the Zero Waste Chefs blog. You can find it at www.zerowastechef.com. Anne-Marie's blog includes a lot of fermentation recipes and is very easy to navigate. She also runs semi-regular webinars and I think her next one, which is on sourdough starter, takes place on the 3rd of May. On this note, I think I'll wrap up for today. So till the next time, may you enjoy many hours of making and your favourite materials, whatever they may be.